turn in your Bibles to two passages, one from the Old Testament book of Proverbs. I'll only read one verse because it is so applicable to our sermon text, which comes from the third chapter of Titus, beginning at verse 12. Proverbs 20, verse 18. Proverbs 20, verse 18 will prepare us for our sermon text of Titus 3, 12 to 15. The Holy Spirit of God directs us. Prepare plans by consultation and make war by wise guidance. And now we come to the Apostle Paul writing to his colleague Titus on the island of Crete. And he finishes his letter with these words. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way, so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would now, having opened to us your word, open our ears and our minds to understand it, to understand the depth and the implications of it for us. Thank you that your word does not return to you empty without accomplishing that purpose for which you sent us, sent it. We thank you for this passage and pray that you would now open our understandings by your spirit. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Today, we celebrate the Christian worker who keeps his head down, working out the nitty-gritty details of gospel proclamation. We celebrate the administrator type, the details person. Because whatever else can be said about the great commission of our Lord Jesus Christ, one thing is for sure, that is not a job that the church can afford to leave in the hands of the visionaries. And by visionaries, I mean the thinkers and the dreamers who offer us only the big picture, only the broad theological end state of a world that is one decisively for Jesus Christ. Those visionaries in the church often make great conference speakers. They may inspire us, they may enthrall us with high hopes and dreams of gospel success 
and what the world might look like when the nations come streaming into the glorious kingdom of God by the preaching of the gospel. But visionaries like that alone can't get us to where the Great Commission tells us we need to get. Now please don't uh, misunderstand me on this point. The church certainly needs men who challenge us to press forward in obedience to Christ, who challenge us to attempt great things for God. But let me suggest to you that Winning the world for Jesus Christ isn't merely the product of these grand sweeping plans to reach whole nations or continents or cultures or even whole cities. Winning the world for Christ begins, rather, with a personal individual resolve to obey our rightful king, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where it begins. And then it proceeds onward from there to the planning and execution of various little gospel ventures and baby steps. Baby steps that we have deliberately thought through and we've uh, resourced and we have coordinated and we've entrusted to God in constant, unrelenting prayer. One of the dangers of idealistic, big-picture thinking, if that's the only weapon in our arsenal, our spiritual arsenal, one of the great dangers is that it doesn't actually deliver the goods. Big-picture thinking alone tends to reduce us to nearly instant discouragement the moment the conference is over and we all go home to our... um, home congregations, and we take a look around at our actual day-to-day circumstances. We've been given this big picture, but then we look at our circumstances and we think, what do we do? The way of the gospel, friends, the way of the gospel is the way of the mustard seed, the way of small beginnings. It's the way of that widow who kept appearing day after day before the unjust judge. Our power isn't so much in the pursuit of these big dreams as it is in our prayerful persistence in a good cause. The glory of God who redeems otherwise hopeless, helpless sinners through faith in the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. This gospel enterprise is a closely coordinated work. It's a work of planning in detail. Preachers don't just magically appear in their pulpits on a Lord's Day morning. Missionaries don't just materialize on the church's various mission fields. And the New Testament epistles didn't just miraculously turn up in the mailboxes of the various New Testament churches. The evangelization of the Roman world in the first century 
just as that of ours today, that evangelization of the world was a monumental feat of human coordination that involved communication and travel and lodging and other logistical considerations just to get the man to the starting point from which he can then begin to persuade men of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and reigning. Now, does the, gospel, uh, does the Holy Spirit guide and direct this big-picture gospel work? Of course he does. Does he bless the endeavor? Yes. Does he follow it with success? Yes. But gospel work, here or anywhere in the world, gospel work is bathed in the blood, sweat, and tears of men who planned in detail and prayed for fair winds and following seas. The details of this logistical coordination often appear in the closing sentences of Paul's letters, as they do here among his final greetings. Here at the end of a letter, we get many of our clues as to, for instance, who knows whom in the first century church and how these letters found their way to their various destinations and who's to be commended in the church and who's been a royal pain in the apostolic neck and what the inspired writer's travel itinerary looks like from here. All of this information tends to be found at the end of a letter. And unfortunately, many readers of the New Testament, when they come across these unfamiliar names, they tend to skim over them as lightly as they can. But I've actually threatened to preach a series someday on these little-known and sometimes virtually invisible men whose names appear scattered here and there on the pages of the New Testament. Their names are worth knowing. But when did you last hear a sermon preached on the glory of God in the life and ministry of Tychicus or Apollos or Zenos or Artemis, Epaphroditus, Aristarchus or any of the rest? When do you hear about them? Each one of these men has something to contribute to our understanding of the church's discharge of the Great Commission, either by word or more often by deed. Each one of them in that first generation made a distinct contribution to the kingdom of God, even from the shadows of the much better known apostle Paul. But let me take this just one step further. Isn't it these many little people of the New Testament, these less celebrated men, even unknown men, who drive home with a special clarity and a special poignancy the fact that this gospel that we preach isn't about celebrities? The gospel isn't about Paul or Peter or 
any of the other apostles. It's not about the lesser people. Christianity is in some cult of preachers and their personalities. When you find yourselves, and each of us will, when you find yourself at the gate of eternity, there's only one name that's going to help you. It's not going to be asked to you whether you heard the gospel from Paul or Peter or Apollos or Jonathan or anybody else. One name will help you. One name will avail you. It's at the name of Jesus that angels prostrate, fall. And if he should increase in the faith and lives of his people, then let all the rest of us who minister in his name, let all the rest of us be perfectly content to decrease. Let us be perfectly content, absolutely content, to disappear altogether from the pages of history. To the point that no one in heaven or on earth may recognize my name except my heavenly Father who sees in secret, who knows me perfectly through and through and yet somehow loves me for Jesus' sake. So today's passage is far more than Paul simply signing off. It offers at least four lessons, in fact, we can glean from the details of gospel logistics. Lessons that we can apply for the good of the whole church, even today and in the week ahead. The first lesson that this passage offers is that in supporting the gospel of Jesus Christ, The well-being of people matters. The well-being of people matters. In fact, it's all about the well-being of people. And we knew this before, didn't we? That just lies on the surface of things. We've read the early chapters of the book of Acts. We've read of the souls of 3,000 at a time. Saved and added to the church. Daily the Lord was adding to the church those who were being saved. And being saved means nothing unless there was something from which they were saved. Unless, in other words, these souls were first in danger. Those early believers gathered in by the thousands, like we ourselves, were in peril of the altogether righteous, eternal wrath of God, ready to be poured out on sinners. And it's the rescue of souls to the glory of God that provides the motivation for this whole gospel enterprise. It's about the well-being of people. But there's another layer to this matter of the gospels promoting people's well-being. It's a rather rare thing to minister to the souls of thousands of people at a time, as Peter did on the day of Pentecost. But I offered prayer once as the invited army chaplain. I was an army chaplain back in those days. I was invited to pray, offer public prayer at a San Antonio Dare 
convention of police officers from all over the world DARE, as you may know, is the acronym for Drug Awareness and Resistance Education. And this particular convention brought about 5,000 police officers from all over the world here to San Antonio. In fact, as I think about it, it was probably a good week for all the rest of the world to just stay at home and lock their doors San Antonio was probably the safest place in the world that week of the convention. But my point is that we don't often get a chance to speak to 5,000 people at a time. Not even Paul did. His influence, by and large, was in the lives of certain individuals. Individuals. Individuals with names. He didn't generally speak to a huge crowd of anonymous humanity. And we too regularly deal with people who have names. People we know. Every day we do. People who for the glory of God need to be in the right place at the right time. Titus, for instance, Titus hadn't been exiled there to the island of Crete. He wasn't going to spend the remainder of his days there. Paul assigned him there. He was serving there for a season. And the time was coming upon the arrival there of either Artemis or Tychicus. The time was coming when Titus would finally be able to break away from his responsibilities and the pressures of ministry in Crete and join Paul in the sunny seaside town of Nicopolis on the Adriatic Sea. That was the plan. Zenos, a lawyer by training, and Apollos, also had specific practical needs to be met as evangelists traveling through Crete. Now, Paul doesn't list what their needs are because he doesn't have to. Titus understands what those needs were apt to be, and certainly Zenos and Apollos knew what their own needs were. They knew what, was, what it was going to take them to move from there on to their next destination. They can speak for themselves, and our needs, after all, are just as individual as we are. What I'm saying is that the well-being of the people that we send out to preach the gospel that ought to be the constant concern of the church. We should be asking these men, so what else do you need? Do you need food? Do you need money? Do you need boarding passes? Do you need paper? Do you need ink? Do you need Wi-Fi? What do you need for the mission? If we can, we'll get it to you. If we can't, we'll find somebody who can. Evangelizing the world is that important. It is that important. After all, we the church aren't just rearranging the furniture when we move people around. These men are the king's representatives. They're doing the king's business. 
and the same degree of effort that went into Titus's plans to visit Nicopolis was now to go into meeting the needs of these two men, Zenos and Apollos. Diligently help these two men on their way so that nothing is lacking to them. Here are two men who are mighty in the scriptures, renowned for their persuasive powers. We know about Apollos' eloquence from the pages of the Acts, and Zenos was a lawyer. His trade was persuading people. And here these two men are now on the island of Crete where their needs, where the need for them is less and the need for their gifts and training and proclamation is greater elsewhere. So help them on their way. Be delightful to keep them there in Crete, no doubt, but help them on their way because the needs are greater elsewhere. The gospel's about the well-being of people, even the people who carry it to others. And because this is true, that the gospel is about the well-being of people, detailed coordination matters. That's the second lesson of this text. In the support and proclamation of the gospel, detailed coordination matters. Christians, of course, always speak well of hope because the Bible speaks well of hope. But that U.S. Army general was right, who told his staff, gentlemen, hope is not a method. What I need is a plan. And couldn't it be that to the extent that the church has a big-picture vision for accomplishing the Great Commission without a corresponding step-by-step detailed plan to get there, to that extent, we failed. To that extent, we've been unfaithful stewards. Now, Reformed churches are absolutely right when we say that because God is sovereign... It'll all work out. Thanks be to God, that's true. It will all work out. But let me suggest to you today that the phrase, it'll all work out, falls short as a battle cry when you're charging into the teeth of the enemy. It'll all work out never appeared on the banner of any of the world's great revivals or reformations. I enjoyed reading Robert Louis Dabney's book on the life and campaigns of Stonewall Jackson. Dabney, you may know, was a Southern Presbyterian minister, later professor of theology, who served for a period as the adjutant on Stonewall Jackson's staff. And it's amazing to read page after page of Dabney as he described the efforts that Jackson made to foster the Christian revival God brought among his Confederate troops in their winter quarters as 1862 passed into 1863. The most sober estimate, Dabney says, the most sober estimate is that during that winter encampment, 12 
thousand Confederate troops were saved by the grace of God in Christ. Twelve thousand. God used not only the Christian example, but also the detailed planning of Jackson among his chaplains, his own chaplains and local civilian ministers. God honors those who honor him. God honors the efforts of those who make and resource and follow a plan to honor him. This concern that Paul had for detailed planning shows up in ways that we might miss if we're not actually looking for them here. First of all, I want you to notice that Paul wants to make sure that the churches in Crete aren't left unattended. Not for so much as a moment. Now there's a time, of course, for churches to be completely under indigenous leadership, their own leadership. But it's evident to Paul that that time hadn't yet arrived in Crete. This island, as he says back in chapter 1, is full of liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And everyone agreed that it was. The Cretans themselves agreed that it was. This is the way we are. Don't leave a church like that with people and a culture like that. Don't leave it alone, unattended. So what's the point? Here's Paul's point. Titus, don't you dare come to Nicopolis to meet me until there's a responsible adult there in Crete to take over the reins for you. Don't leave it unattended. You'll be turning the asylum over to the inmates if you don't wait for Artemis or Tychicus to arrive. Come to Nicopolis when I send one or the other of them to you and don't come here a moment before. Paul's planning also takes into account such matters as the weather. The weather. I've decided to spend the winter in Nicopolis. Winter. When the Mediterranean Sea and weather is even more iffy than usual. You'll be leaving Crete the only way anyone ever leaves Crete. By stepping aboard a ship. A ship whose adherence to its published schedule is largely determined by the vagaries of the weather. When your relief comes, in the form of either Artemis or Tychicus, when he comes, don't dilly-dally there while the weather worsens. Make every effort to get here. Planning also includes the wise use of all available personnel. As we've already noticed, Zenos was a lawyer, which probably means he practiced Roman rather than the Mosaic law. Zenos was a Roman lawyer. Now, he didn't need to specify this to Titus, of course. Paul didn't need to specify this to Titus because Titus obviously knew what kind of law Zenos practiced. 
In any case, he's an educated man and he's trained in the persuasive arts. And then there's Apollos, whose gifts we know from his introduction in the Acts. Chapter 18, verses 24 to 28. Let's read together about Apollos from this passage. Acts 18, verses 24 to 28. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. That's what we know, much of what we know, about Apollos. And the need for gifted, consecrated speakers like these is always and everywhere great, isn't it? Both Zenos and Apollos happened then to be on Crete, on the island of Crete, with Titus. But now these other places, wherever they are, these other places are crying out for the teaching of these two renowned Christian men. And Titus, they're remaining in Crete, he's able to carry on the ministry without them. So it's time to send them on their way with everything they need. A third lesson, whose uh, a third lesson that these logistical notes give us relates to the matter of sending these men onward. And it is that training the church to be helpful matters. Training the church to be helpful is important. Now, you'll remember that we've seen this emphasis on good works all through this letter. It's not just about promoting sound doctrine, although we've heard a lot about sound doctrine in this letter, haven't we? It's not all about that, but it's about the truth which is according to godliness. It's about living sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Concerning these things, Paul says, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. And so on throughout the letter. Great emphasis on good deeds, good works, stemming from your sound doctrine and acceptance and embracing it. And here in verse 14 we have, and let our people also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs that they may not be unfruitful. I want you to consider this scenario. 
let's say you have a congregation of 20 families, 20 households. And let's say a mere 10 of them enjoy housing circumstances that allow them to host visiting preachers overnight. And let's say that five of those 10 homes are the homes of elders and deacons. So out of those 20 families total, how many would you say might legitimately be asked to provide support in some real, tangible way as gospel preachers come through their town? Beloved, the number of families who need training in support of the gospel is 20. All of them. We all need this training. Many Reformed churches, for whatever reason, seem to devote less attention to training our people in good deeds than Paul himself devoted when he wrote his pastoral epistles. I don't know why that is. I don't know why the support of the gospel, whatever form that support may take, seems often to fall so disproportionately on so few when in fact so many are benefited. Maybe it's just a matter of personal circumstance. It often is. But we should ask ourselves, could it be that any of us are inclined to be more hearers of the word than doers of it? I can't answer that question as to one's motivation. I can only make the observation and pose the question. How involved are you, each of you, in providing support when a pastoral candidate, for instance, comes to town? How involved do you want to be? How important is it to you that you learn how to support the propagation of the gospel? that you take the next step from saved sinner to fruitful and faithful servant. Well, let me press to the chase. The fourth lesson of gospel logistics comes from the final verse of this wonderful letter of Paul to Titus, this quintessence of Christian doctrine, as Martin Luther called it. This fourth lesson is the lesson that in the support of the gospel and its proclamation, love matters. Love matters. That's the bottom line. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Love deserves the best and final word in our communication. It'll always deserve the best and the final word. I heard on the radio some time ago a woman who was telling her own story about how she just found it impossible to tell people she loved them. Even her own parents would sometimes end their phone calls to her with those three sweet little words and all she could muster herself to say in response to them was an awkward, yeah, well, I'll see you. 
Dear friends, that woman was echoing the sad story of the fallen human race. Unless this gospel of Paul and Titus, this gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ slain for helpless sinners, good news that we all need to hear and we all need to support with our very best efforts, unless this gospel pierces our own dead hearts by the power of his grace, then love in all of its wonderful human and divine manifestations will always elude us. We won't practice love. We won't even understand it. It'll be just so much gibberish and romantic nonsense when we hear about it. And the passage of years in a life apart from Christ and his love is only going to make us the more cynical, the more jaded, the more hardened to the overtures of a deeply loving God a deeply loving family, a deeply loving church. And the day may eventually come when the best we can do in the face of all this boundless heavenly love pouring out from beneath the throne of grace, the best that we can do, not having our hearts pierced by that grace and love, the best that we can do is to explain all of this goodness by purely natural means, natural causes. But the fact of the matter, friends, is that the sun shines and flowers bloom and Christians love. It's what we do. God be praised. It's what we do. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, then, be with you all. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful letter of your Holy Spirit to the church, through the pen of your Apostle Paul to the man Titus. And though it was written long ago, And far away, we thank you that your spirit has also not only inspired this letter, but preserved it through the centuries that your church today and in every age might be the beneficiaries of what we read here, that we might know more fully not only the glorious gospel of our redemption, but that we might be able to see through the lens of the experience of others how we transmit this gospel in our own generation and to generations to come. Help us to be careful planners. Help us to be careful thinkers. Help us, above all, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbors as ourselves. Thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit enabling us to do this and driving us to do it. We pray all of these things from grateful hearts and shouts of joy in our our Lord Jesus' name. Amen. Let us pray.
Our Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for strength for the battle before us. Thank you for the great commission that you've given us to do. And we pray that you would enable us as your people to think clearly through this great commission, to plan for it, to be vigorous and robust in the execution of it. And we pray that you would keep us together united in the bonds of brotherhood. Thank you that you have uh, provided everything that we need in Christ Jesus to be your people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people who are your own special treasure. We pray that we might not rest upon these laurels, but that you would continue to stir us up to go forth and preach this gospel. We ask this at every level, that nations might indeed be one, and that our children and that our neighbors, by the observation of our example and the sound of our words, be persuaded not to die apart from Christ, not to die not far from the kingdom of God, but to enter in. We ask these things, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.